Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best coaches in the industry to teach you guys how to crush it in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a concise curriculum. We've created one of the premier men's lifestyle programs available anywhere, and it's free. This is the show we wish we had a decade ago. Now, this show is about you, and we're here to help you become the best man you can be in every area of your life. Make sure to stay up to date with everything going on here and get some free ebooks and drills and exercises that'll help you become more charismatic and confident by signing up for the newsletter at theartofcharm.com. If you're new to the show but you want to know more about what we teach here at The Art of Charm, listen to The Art of Charm Toolbox at theartofcharmpodcast.com slash toolbox. That's where we've got the fundamentals of dating and attraction, such as body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, including some episodes on breakups and relationship management. That's where all the basics are, so get a handle on that first. We've got boot camps running every single month here in Hollywood, California. Details on those at theartofcharm.com. Looking forward to meeting all you guys here at AOC. All right, today we're talking with Dr. Isaiah Henkel. That's right, Dr. Henkel. It sounds kind of funny, but he's a great guy. He's a former sheep farmer, and now he's an author and a tech consultant, among other things, and he's a very sharp dude. He actually formed three successful multinational businesses, and he's published a book called Black Hole Focus. And we're going to talk about why charisma is a multi-million slash maybe even billion-dollar skill for corporations as well as individuals, why and how charisma is a science. And this is great for all the haters out there that we might come across who think that this is something that you're born with because we're actually going to prove that it's not. And defining and developing charisma is something we're going to talk about. So expression, self-control, calibration, presence, clarity. If you've ever wondered or worried about any of those things, now is a great time to learn about all of those from a scientific perspective. We're also going to talk about how reading fiction actually amps up your emotional intelligence, why your stomach is smarter than your cat, how to get super present and intense without looking like a tool, and the science behind willpower depletion, which is something that is kind of newish, but really shocking and actually informed a lot of my opinions about how I just live my life during the day. We're also going to talk about how to be more than you seem by showing contrasting character traits and how to arouse and impassion others through emotion. And last but not least, we're going to talk about ruling over your emotions with an iron fist using the counterbalance strategy and adjusting your physiology. This is a great episode, instant classic. I don't say that very often. So enjoy this one with Dr. Isaiah Henkel. You know, it's funny. I'm looking at this right now I'm looking at your bio and when I read it I was like is this for real because you were a former sheep farmer in rural Idaho and now you're like a professor or something in Germany right I mean first of all start from the beginning because it's I mean a sheep farmer really <laughs> I grew up in kind of like the Pacific Northwest area so we moved around a lot rural Idaho Washington and uh, worked on a sheep farm I actually kind of integrate that into a lot of my talks because I like talking about kind of herd behavior and how to get away from that. So it worked out well. Yes, yeah, so I grew up working on farms, doing those kind of things and went to school in Pennsylvania to college, kind of moved 3,000 miles away. That was the first big trip. Got the PhD in Iowa. So I kind of bounced around the US. And then I started working internationally for different biotech companies. Ended up in Europe doing some biotech consulting and then started getting into the business coaching side of things and writing books and stuff like that. So that's. So what would you say you are now if you had to give yourself a job title, which is something that I struggle with. So I feel your pain. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like there's so many things now. I mean, an author, you know, I got a book published. I, I really like to write for me. That's the most fulfilling thing that I, I would say I do. I love, I mean, not to sound like a total freaking nerd, but I just love science 
And so I, I like staying close to that, like innovation and biotech and, you know, pharmaceutical stuff. So I do, I still do a lot of marketing in there. So I kind of, I like crossing that bridge between science and kind of business marketing back and forth. Yeah, that's pretty niche. And I've seen that you've worked a lot with companies in the Fortune 500, Amgen, GlaxoSmithKline, Pfizer, Roche, Genentech, basically every devil villain that people are afraid of when it comes to like medicine and things like that. Your words, not mine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, definitely not yours. That could damage the old resume. But I mean, you've also been with Harvard, Stanford, Oxford, a lot of other Fords, Cambridge and the Curie Institute, stuff like that. So I mean, that's a big deal, even if you don't know what half of those are like me. And the best part is that you were diagnosed with ADD and ADHD because obviously you were just really bored in school, most likely. Yeah, yeah. I was always getting yelled at by my teachers. I couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. And I just like could not sit still. And they kept being like, "You just you, if you just put them on this medication, all of our lives will be easier. I was lucky. My, my parents were like, no, especially my dad is like, nope. He just kept channeling all that energy into different things, you know, whether it be sports or science or, you know, writing, all this kind of stuff. I think I kind of benefit from it now. I think it kind of maybe held me back before, but once you learn to kind of channel it, it becomes an advantage for sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I was also diagnosed with ADD, but here's the thing. I totally milked that and knew that I was going to get <laughs> diagnosed if I bounced my leg and answered the questions in the right way <laughs> so that I could get an Adderall prescription. And honestly, that stuff got me through law school. It was like an unfair advantage. It was like yeah, it. brain steroid. Yeah, that too. <laughs> Your words, not mine. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I definitely understand what that stuff can do. And I remember taking it and being like, wow, is this how normal people feel all the time? Because you really are focused. But the problem is, one, it's terrible for you. And two, you don't need it when you want to focus on something that doesn't suck the life out of you. It's, it's like pretty much meth. I mean, it's a, it's a derivative of meth depending on what you're taking. So it's, it's like, wow, I'm really super focused. It's like, yeah, you're on like the most potent drug imaginable. Breaking yeah. bad. I mean, what are you doing? Yeah, I remember telling my girlfriend at the time, that I felt really good while I was on it. And she's like, I don't think you're supposed to feel good. I think you're just supposed to do your homework. And I'm like, I don't even want to do my homework. I want to go hang out. I want to chat people up. This is phenomenal. But then I went to a doctor. He had told me like, hey, you know that like a 17-year-old kid had a heart attack from taking this stuff in Canada, right? And so it's banned. And I was like, nah, I'm done with this stuff. Because he literally walks out of the clinic with me. There's a lot of back and forth. And he's got the prescription in his hand. He looks me straight in the face and goes, please don't take this stuff. All right. And I literally just was like, you can just keep that. And he's like, thank you. I really don't want to give you this prescription. So, I mean, when a doctor says that and yeah. like just pleads with you not to do it, you got to give them that. I mean, doctors are guilty of a lot of pill pushing, but when they're trying not to fill a prescription for you, you kind of want to listen yeah. on that one. And that's a good doctor right there. I mean, it's massively overprescribed. So that's yeah, fortunate for you for sure. Yeah, I was pretty surprised. I've never had a doctor do anything like that before. So that was the last time I ever took Adderall because I just thought, wow, you know, like this guy doesn't stand to gain much other than to be able to sleep at night by doing this. So he must have really felt strongly about it. But anyway, you formed three successful multinational businesses. You've got a book called Black Hole Focus, which we'll talk about, uh, which is a great title because... If there's anything that sucks somebody in and doesn't let them out, it's obviously a black hole, according to Hey, Stephen. well, I'm glad one person got it. You know, that Do people really not get that? Do they just not know who Stephen Hawking is or anything like that? It's one or the other. I get people like, oh, wow, really cool title. And other people are like, well, I don't get this at all. This is stupid. Why yeah. would anybody buy this? Is that a sexual <laughs> reference? I don't, I, don't, <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I don't get it. Essentially, you have a system that you went from ADD sheep farmer to <laughs> entrepreneur, author, coach, etc. 
and you've given a lot of presentations on this subject. I'd like to hear some of that. I know the audience, the guys out there want to hear a lot about this because I assume right now I'm speaking to people that barely pay attention to anything that I'm saying most of the time, let alone their own work. So I would love to know the science strategy, et cetera, behind this and help people improve their performance, help organizations improve their performance. Where do we even begin with this besides, hey, put down the Adderall and pick up the book? What else? Yeah. So most people by default, they think in kind of a very tactical, not to go back to the sheep, but a very sheep-like nature. I talk about some of these things in the book and some of my presentations about this herd mentality. And, and there are different studies that show that like a flock of sheep, for example, if you have a flock of 200 sheep, you only have to get a really low percentage of them, about 5% of them moving in a particular direction for like the rest of the flock to follow without knowing why. But those same studies did similar experiments with humans, and they found out if you have a large group of human beings, 200, 300, you only have to get 5% of the individuals in that group moving in a particular direction for the rest of the humans to follow without knowing why too. Is it literally movement? Because I feel like there's all these sociological phenomena and psychological phenomena that we hear about in the news, and I can't remember any of the names for them now, but like, say there's a guy having a heart attack in Times Square and then 10 people just stare at him, there'll be like 100 people who are like, well, if this was a real emergency, one of those people would have done something because they're closer and then they keep walking, not realizing that the first 10 exactly. people just freaked out and so the other 10 people who could be like nurses need to, to act in order to save this person, but nobody does anything and therefore nobody else does anything either. I think the first book that I read experiments about that in was uh, Influence, The Power of Persuasion right. by Cialdini. Ken Cialdini. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, you know, I've experienced it too. I remember being a kid and uh, we drive with my parents and, and this car got an accident in front of us and a bunch of people pulled over and everybody was just kind of standing around and like people kept leaving, including us. We kind of left because we, I just assumed my parents thought that somebody was there to handle it, you know, was going to, had already called the ambulance, whatever else. So you don't really know what to do. And, and the sheep thing, like, in terms of movement, of course, herd mentality, but it's also in terms of decision making, right? So we, we have a tendency to really just look around at us and what's happening uh, to the person next to us, what other people are going after instead of really taking the time to figure out strategically what we want to go after, where we want to be, whether it's six months, a year from now, five years from now. Okay. And by the way, that's called bystander apathy. That's yes. what it's called, the bystander effect. Yes. So of course, everybody wants focus. Everybody wants purpose. But it's really easy to get distracted, and it's really easy for us to say, like, hey, don't watch TV and limit distractions and turn your <laughs> phone off. And, you know, all the stuff that we tell people to do that most people don't do, uh, even I can't turn my phone off. At least I turn it on that do not disturb mode so it doesn't distract me. Yes. But it, it's there when I need my fix, but it doesn't call my name, right? You also talk a lot about how a lot of people think you're essentially born with charisma or you're not. Charisma is also a science, aside from just focus and a skill that can be sharpened through a few key methods, right? So, and you talk about this as well, expressiveness, control, sensitivity, presence, paradox, and physical arousal. I would love to get into that as well, because productivity, focus, those are awesome. They're in the book. I'm sure people will pick that up, but right. you're going to be my Sherpa here to carry this burden up Mount Everest, because a lot of people, they're going, what studies show this? In fact, I did a, an interview with my friend Gabriel Mizrahi, posted it on YouTube, and so the first comment was, F this guy, <laughs> he doesn't know what he's talking about. This is a bunch of baloney. There's no such thing as charisma that you can develop. It's not a science. And I was like, ah, somebody smarter than me would put you right in your place, young man. <laughs> you know? If I can think of the words. 
if I knew which studies that prove this and if I could point to an actual expert aside from a zillion books written by people on a bunch of podcasts that this guy's obviously not going to listen to because he wants to be right. For one thing, how do you know charisma is a science and a skill? Uh, who says? Yeah, great question. So it's, it's like anything. If you can break something down into components and study it, it's a science. Charisma, you can do that. And there's lots of different names for charisma, whether it's, you know, people give it fancier names like interpersonal skills or communication skills, people skills, blah, blah, blah. There's a couple of things, a couple of important factors to realize that this idea of charisma, of interpersonal skills, you know, being able to make somebody, you know, likability, relatability, whatever it is. I like to start with kind of the reason why, like, why is this important? It's because it doesn't matter what industry you're in, what business you're trying to do. It is the most important skill set. Survey after survey after survey show that interpersonal skills are the number one things that employers are looking for, and it's the number one things that people are promoted for, and the number one thing people are fired over for not oh, having. Oh, I didn't kind of know that. See, I knew that that it was one of the rarest qualities in a hire, um, and I've talked about this on the show before. The so-called airport rule that consultants, I think McKinsey and other consulting firms use this, or the layover rule. It's like they look at your resume and they go, "Cool, all right, GPA fine, whatever." They hit the bar. If you were stuck with this person in an airport lounge for five hours on a layover, would you want to kill them? And it's like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, I would. And that's like, all right, next. Because at the end of the day, you got to work with that person 12, 14 hours a day at a motel in Boise, Idaho, doing some consulting gig. And if you want to throw them out of a moving vehicle, they don't belong in your firm because you're stuck with that person a lot. So they'd rather hire somebody who literally has a lot more to learn but is actually just a cool person to be with because they can fix all of the technical aspects. They can bring somebody who's essentially average into superstardom. It just takes a lot more work, but it's really hard for them to bring somebody who's an a-hole up to the place where people like them. That's our job. Absolutely. Just because you wanted some of the hard stats, there was a survey in Workforce Solutions Group. 60% of applicants lack these interpersonal skills. 60%. So I think it's important to show the value that if you take the time to actually practice this stuff and to study it because it is a science and it is a skill, you can put yourself ahead of quite a few people. There's not a lot of competition out there for people with really solid interpersonal skills. Wow. Yeah. That alone speaks for itself. So now that we know charisma is a science and a skill that can be sharpened, how come organizations aren't spending a ton on this or are they? Because that's the other sort of critique that we get a lot is if this were so important and I don't get it from people in business. People in business are like, we have tons of these people come in. They're ridiculously ineffective. No offense. Somebody that went to school for HR and is like 24 and is like, smile at people when you see them. Duh, right? (laughs) It's not nuanced enough. It's not targeted enough. It's not tailored enough. And people are basically on their Blackberry the whole time. You work with companies teaching people these skills, correct? Right. So this is a hot button enough area where multi-billion dollar corporations see actual ROI from bringing you in. Because not just that you charge a buttload of money, which I'm sure you do, but having all of your executives in a room for one, two, three days or, or even as many hours costs you millions of dollars in opportunity cost. Exactly. And, and this is something that companies are spending money on. I mean, of course, it differs from company to company, but... Being able to communicate effectively with clients, uh, with your colleagues, with management is exceptionally important, especially now that we're in, you know, you've, you've heard this term, the connection economy or attention economy. It's more important now than ever. And uh, there was another poll that showed that the most important thing for employees is transparency, the level of communication with management. 
this kind of trend and the level of importance interpersonal skills has on both of you know our personal lives and our professional lives is just going to increase. And what a lot of people fail to do is again break it down into a science. It's really easy to go in and, and cheer everybody up for a couple of hours and make them feel good, right? And then leave. But to break down the science and to do it in a way that people understand and, and where the content is like sticky, you know, it's going to stay with you. Yes, it's different. So you have to kind of build that framework. You have to have the science on top of it, but it also has to be understandable, clear, and these things that I'm mentioning right now, it's what makes up charisma as well. I mean, you mentioned some of the points. I think we should break it down here again. There's really kind of seven components of charisma. And I think it helps to break them down so people can understand, like, okay, what do you mean by charisma? So it's not this black box. And the first is expressiveness. This is really just the ability to strike up conversations with strangers and kind of relate to them in a fairly short amount of time and convey your feelings easily. Uh, sensitivity. Having kind of a long antenna, we hear that word, you know, the ability to read other people, fill out a room. I can talk about studies about this stuff later. Uh, self-control. So by self-control here, I mean the ability to kind of adjust your personality, you know, maybe tone it down a little bit or maybe amplify it a little bit depending on the mood and social makeup of the group. Uh, presence, you know, being in the moment with someone without being a threat and without being kind of like a tool bag, you know, like that creepy guy. Yes, of course. The fake like alpha bro guy who's like, yeah. I got to be tough. <laughs> that's what's, yeah, that chest bump. That's what that's what alpha means. We shred this on my show as often as we can, because honestly, that it's one of the biggest disservices. But go on. So defining charisma, self-control, calibration, presence. Presence, uh, clarity. This is a big one. I mean, especially like we're so overloaded with information. If you can just by being clear, you can increase your likability. And I wasn't going to go into the studies yet, but there's one at a university of Massachusetts. It looked at like 133 uh, managers, and it found out that if an auditor is well organized, that's it. Well organized, they're automatically more likable. The study shows that then if they're, if they're not well organized. So just that one factor, how clear your presentation skill is, or how much you can kind of funnel down information and data into a few key points that are interesting and sticky, very important. And then the last one is mystery and paradox. And this is kind of that unpredictable factor. And people have a hard time with this, but it's also scientific. It's about having a, a layered personality, right? Not being very one-dimensional, being multidimensional instead, kind of being more than what you seem certain male characters from pop culture yeah. that kind of have this yin and yang sides to them. I, you know, I think Don Draper from Mad Men, right? Very popular, very successful and brooding on the one hand, uh, but being very warm and good at his job on the other hand. I think Tyler Durden from Fight Club. I mean, this has been ranked by, I don't know how many different websites is like the, the most charismatic or, or whatever guy, just because there's, again, there's kind of two sides, maybe very intelligent but also a little bit of a, a loose cannon. Uh, very, very strong, but also very warm at the same time. You know, very confident, but also very vulnerable. So these kind of things play off each other, and they make you multidimensional, and they make people—they draw people in. They make people want to learn more about you. Wow. All right. That's a lot. I even involuntarily said wow because I felt overwhelmed by a lot of that. So let's dig into each one of these before people yep. decide they can never do it and they're just going to work in a cubicle forever. Um, <laughs> Let's redefine charisma because you, you did say what that was, but I want to repeat it because I've never heard that happen before. So can we define charisma one more time? I would say charisma is really you know these seven different components, uh, being able to express yourself, uh, being sensitive to situations, be, having self-control, so being able to kind of adjust your persona to match the mood of a room, uh, being present, being clear, being multidimensional, or having a layered personality. Okay. 
how do we start to develop these? Because that's a lot of very discrete skill sets. I'm, first of all, I want to start with expression, and then, of course, I want to go straight to warmth because that's not my strong suit. I consider myself decent at a lot of these, but I've definitely heard, especially from some females, like, hey, you know, you're not the warmest person. And, man, five years ago, I was a cold-hearted SOB, even to people <laughs> that I liked, and I wasn't necessarily doing it on purpose. It's just not something that I grew up with. And so it's not something that I naturally express. Yeah, you're like a robot, dude. Yeah, just I'm a, just a soulless robot. <laughs> no, but so, uh, again, the, the important thing I think to point out here is that most people already know this and are already doing some of these things. But breaking it down, it, it's not so much overwhelming as it's like, okay, now I can identify these things when I'm doing them. And I, and I have really kind of I have good examples that I will kind of stay with you for each of them. Good studies too. So expressiveness again. I don't think there's anybody that's born that has that innate ability to go up and strike up a conversation with somebody they don't know and get along well with them. It's something that's practiced. This is what expressiveness is. Okay, so how can you improve expressiveness on like a more practical way? Well, there's a study or a group of studies that were done by this group at MIT, and they developed a gadget called the sociometer. I don't know if you've heard of this, but it kind of measures charismatic actions by tracking speech patterns and body movement. And it found that people that incorporate lots of like unconscious gestures, mannerisms, expressions, and that have a, kind of a specific level of even nervous energy and, and fast talking are associated with having more charisma, were found to be able to influence people easier, which is fascinating. So, you know, think of Vince Vaughn and Wedding Crashers. Oh, That's yeah. a great example. Yeah, that is a great example because he's charismatic, but he's also a little bit like – I want to say spazzy, but I know in the UK that's extremely rude. In the US, it's just kind of a funny word. But he's like, oh, excuse me for being creepy, for having a little yeah. boy, blah, blah. And it's just like this rant. And the, but it is, it is endearing, whereas if somebody has that but not the other qualities, it's like Woody Allen, which is not charismatic, <laughs> right? Exactly. And that's just the one side of expressiveness. So I think variability of speech is an important one. And this is something that's taught in a lot of speech courses. You know, you want to slow it down at times, talk a little bit slower, kind of bring your points together, and then you want to start building enthusiasm again and talking a little bit faster. Uh, just these little things can really increase how charismatic you are and how you come off to other people. So that's what I mean by expressiveness. All right, back to the show. So you kind of meet them at maybe their current energy level and gradually ramp up. So instead of coming in like, oh my God, this is so amazing, da 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 where people go, whoa, calm down, cowboy. You sort of meet them at, on an even keel, and then you lasso them in, and then you get excited. They tend to get excited with you. Yes, and that's a great point. And I was, I was going to get to that under self-control because the first move is always to just pay attention. This is how you can understand kind of the mood of the group. Pay attention to your audience. You have to be able to read them first, really observe and then you can try to find some common ground with them and relate to them so that they kind of feel attached to you. And then you can start ramping them up, wrapping their energy levels up if you want to, or, you know, bringing them to wherever you, wherever you want them to go, really. And that's powerful, right? Because we've seen that happen for better. You know, you look at an Apple keynote or something, right? Yes. And we've seen it happen for worse if you look at World War II and, and things like that as well. Yes, great point. And the second thing is, you know, the reverse of expressing this really, where it's not you expressing yourself, but you're paying attention to how other people are expressing themselves. And this is under that kind of banner of sensitivity. So having a long antenna, the ability to read other people or fill out a room. The one thing that increases this more than anything else, and there's a lot of studies on this right now, and it's pretty surprising, but not really if you, if you think about it, it's that reading literary fiction 
really increases sensitivity. It's been shown to improve what? your ability to Why? Yeah, no, improve your ability to detect and understand other people's emotions better and faster and navigate social networks easier. Wait, wait, wait. Why would reading fiction help you read emotions better? And it's got to be rich fiction, so not just like, I don't know. Like, like Game a, of Thrones or something? <laughs> <laughs> Game of Thrones is pretty rich. Yeah. Uh, what's this guy that does the notebook and stuff, that these short books? I don't know. Okay, so uh, yeah, reading like romantic fiction? All right, fair enough. That might be. Obviously, like popular fiction, you know, is not this rich fiction, especially where there's a lot of social networks and, and character. Uh, like Stephen King's The Stand is a good example. Okay, so not like Tom Clancy. <laughs> it's not going to cut it. The richer, the better. Basically, you get something out of everything you read, but the richer, the better. It raises your emotional intelligence, and it falls in line with everything we're talking about, interpersonal skills, communication skills, you know, the words you pick up, everything. But really what it does here is it improves your empathy, and that's what sensitivity is all about. Wow, that's interesting. I never would have thought that reading The Stand would make you more, more socially <laughs> adept. I mean, good God. I'll, leave, I'll accept the Game of Thrones, too. So. Yeah, yeah, perfect. I think people are thinking right now about everybody that gets really into those novels and they're thinking, that's not the most social person I know. But That's because you said Game of Thrones, though. But I mean, yeah, you, the most charismatic people, the best presenters, they read a lot. They do. They read a lot of autobiographies and biographies, though, too. Yes. Educated people in general who know how other famous people operate tend to be charismatic because they're emulating a lot of those traits, I would imagine. As you read books like that, as you read stories in general, I mean, uh, studies show that our brains, they work to put us in the place of the main character. So you're actually experiencing all those social interactions in the book as you're reading it. That makes a lot of sense and also it forces you to use your brain to basically develop a whole huge network of social relationships that are present in the book that happen at much faster than they would in your normal life as they exactly. unfold. Exactly. So you, yeah, you can read a book, you know, whatever, 100 pages in a couple of hours versus having to go out to a bunch of different networking events. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. So that's a great way to build warmth. And of course, uh, reading fiction, amping up your emotional intelligence, not what I expected. These are all kind of new studies, so it's, it's, it's very interesting and it's solid too. Yeah. Then uh, the third one is self-control. And really just, I hate telling people to, it's kind of a thin line. I hate telling people to like change yourself for other people or, or like you got to kind of walk this thin line when you say this. Like you want to adjust your behavior and your personality in a way that serves you best to the group. You're not trying to just please other people, but you're trying to communicate best to others. And that's what this control piece is all about. It's adjusting your persona to match the mood and social makeup of any group. Um, and this is where, I don't know if you've heard of your mirror neurons. We actually call this calibration at the yes. Art of Charm. And calibration. Uh, I get it, self-control, because essentially, is an extreme example. You don't go to a corporate office wearing shorts and a Hawaiian shirt and start high-fiving everybody, right? That's uncalibrated. Right. Everybody knows that. But what a lot of people don't know is that you also don't go to a group of people who are friends with each other, having fun, and are well-connected and act stuffy because yes. you might think it makes you look smart or put together, but really everybody else is like, when's this guy going to leave because he's sucking the life out of our dinner? Right. And being able to read that, I mean, that goes back to sensitivity, right? You know, and sensitivity, which we didn't mention, uh, involves body language too, yes. uh, which we can talk about later. So this kind of stuff, but calibration is really important. And well, you brought up calibration and, and sensitivity. And I just have to say that I think your, your listeners would be surprised to hear how much of your gut is involved in this, in calibration and sensitivity. You're so literally your, gut, your, your physical gut, your, your, your physical digestive stomach, system, your physical gut, your digestive system has more neurons than a cat does in its head. 
And most people don't realize that. Nice. Like, so there's actually a small brain in your stomach. And so when people get a gut feeling or something just doesn't feel right, there's actually a transaction that's happening between those neurons in your gut and your, the primal part of your brain, like your brain stem, like your unconscious mind. Being more in tune with that stuff, like getting that feeling that maybe your boss doesn't want to hear from you right now and you should leave his office immediately, you should probably listen to that and do it. Kind of harnessing those gut feelings. A lot of those reactions, I don't know if you've heard of you know, the uh, Malcolm Gladwell book, Blink. Blink yeah, of they course. happen so quickly and it's because – of these neurons along with many other things. And so I think getting in tune with those things will help you in a large way be more charismatic. That's interesting. So my stomach is literally smarter than my pet. Yes. Wow. <laughs> if it's a cat. I don't so, know about a dog. <laughs> yeah, I have a cat right now. It's a hairless cat. My girlfriend got it. I'm not a cat person normally, but this guy, isn't that insane? Are we talking no about hair. charisma right now? We are, yeah. No. And my girlfriend's cat. <laughs> it's related. It's relevant. Come on. <laughs> Um, how does it work then? Okay, it's smarter than my cat, but yeah, we have gut feelings. Something bad is going to happen. But here, the counterpoint is kind of like, aren't I just reading nonverbal communication, or you know, aren't I just reading signs with my subconscious brain says it's my stomach, but really it's a reaction caused in my stomach by my brain that I think is my. I mean, how do we know that that is real? Well, I mean, scientific studies show that it's real, that it's happening. But as far as how do we know, like practically, like it matters. Science science. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, who, how do cares we about the science? who cares about the research? <laughs> For example, I can tell you that when I was in graduate school, my mentor had like an open office door policy, right? But of course, nobody really has an open door policy. Like sometimes they're okay with you coming and asking questions and bothering them. And sometimes they're not. And I would go in like when I was – the first couple of years I was in grad school and I had something I really wanted to figure out and like it was important to me right then at that time. So I would go in there and like even though he was typing furiously and wouldn't look up to see me and he would just say, hey, what's up? And you know, total body turned away from me. I would still ask him questions and he was like – and he'd end up giving me short answers and I'd, I'd actually get kind of angry about the exchange. And I was like, okay, something's not right here. And then I slowly learned, okay, when I go in there and I get this feeling that he hates me and doesn't want me in there, that's real and I should leave and come back later when it's a better time for him. You know, so something simple like that. So when you feel like somebody is annoyed with you, you know, don't try to just drive home whatever your point is and get out what you want to say, especially if you're asking them for something. Read that and be like, okay, hold on a sec. I'm feeling this way for a reason. Come back later. That though, it could, you know, the counterpoint is, isn't that just my brain? doing that. I, and I guess the larger question, science says it's a stomach. Fair enough. But the larger question is, how do we develop that? There's plenty of people that would walk in, see that you're on the phone talking with somebody and be like, cool, I'll just stand here and wait. And you're like, yeah, I'm on the phone with my <laughs> with my wife. And they're like, cool, I'll, I'll just sit down and wait. And you're thinking, uh, okay, get the hell out of my office. Right. I mean, there's so many people that do that. And, and <laughs> You know, servers at restaurants and stuff like yeah. that. You know, your girlfriend's crying at the table and she's like, so have we thought about any appetizers? And you're like, hello. Never happened to me. Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, you're just thinking, what the hell is this person's problem? But, it, you know, that happens all the time. How do we develop that? If you're the person that seems to interrupt people all the time and get negative reactions, you're probably wondering right now, how the heck do I fix this? Everyone has a friend like that. And if you don't have one, you're that friend. You're that friend, exactly. <laughs> No, no, no. So the first thing to clarify is that all this is happening simultaneously in your entire nervous system, not just like your gut, right? Uh, it's obviously your brain, your conscious, subconscious brain, your different parts of your brain and your stomach. Um, but the important question is how do you develop this? For me, it really comes down to looking for 
visual clues and then linking those to the way that I feel right away. So if I start feeling like someone is uncomfortable with me around, and now that I'm aware of this kind of connection with body language and everything else, I look and I see, okay, how are they sitting right now? What are they doing? Okay, I'm feeling like I'm making them uncomfortable, and they're also turned away from me, pretending to be on the phone or you know, coaxing their crying girlfriend. There's a connection there. So as you start to do this through practice, because it is a skill, you'll get better and better at it. And the reverse is true too. If you're not really in touch with that feeling as well, if you see it visually, you get that visual clue, then you can go back, try to sense the feeling and try to sharpen that sense. You might even have to say what's happening right now. You might even have to like humble yourself down and go, do I need to come back later and, and literally get feedback from people or is something happening right now where I shouldn't be here? Because otherwise, if you don't sense it, or if you're ignoring it to that level, especially guys who have like mild Asperger's and things like that, they have to learn this stuff manually. Yes, and it's crucial. I mean, in terms of charisma, knowing your audience is so important. Like The importance of it is being able to influence other people, right? And that's why it's important for business, whether it's influencing your colleagues with your ideas or influencing someone to buy your product or service. And if you want to influence somebody, you have to focus on when is the best time to try to influence them. And when's the best time for them, not the best time for you? This is probably the most important thing that we're going to talk about here is like knowing your audience to get what you want. You know, of course, you can try to influence them and change it, but sometimes it's going to be a non-starter. Right? They're like, oh, I'm on the phone or I don't want to talk to you right now. Or they're, or they're really upset or it's like late on a Wednesday afternoon, which a lot of studies show are the worst days to ask for things like raises, for example. Don't do it then. Wait for a Thursday, which studies have shown is the best day to ask for raises because people are more open. So that's a large part of, of being charismatic is knowing when and what is best for the other person, not just yourself. That's a good point. Knowing what works for other people and not just you. Because as an only child, I'm extremely guilty of just being like, but I want this right now. What's the problem? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. And I totally understand that, that desire. But yes, the way I've had to look at it is, wait, but I want to win this. And the best way to do that is to look at what's best and easiest for them. Yeah, and that goes back to being strategic and not sheep-like, right? The sheep would just keep plowing forward with the rest of the herd. But if you kind of zoom out a little bit, you're like, okay, like you said, I want to win this, even if I have to wait a day. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. A lot of people aren't willing to do that because, again, you know, only child or whatever. One of the things I definitely want to make sure we hit home on here as well is this getting super present and intense. You said that presence and clarity were extremely important. As you probably know, a large movement of people, not just men, but they're all like, I'm present, I'm clear, I'm I'm <laughs> focused on the now, and it just comes across as just freaking weird. I mean, yeah. I live in California, San Francisco and LA are just riddled with guys that are like, I'm just getting really clear today, Facebook status, like, <laughs> who am I today? Who, who do I wanna be this morning? And I'm like, what the, what is this garbage? It's so unrelatable. And I get that maybe there's something there and I'm gonna get, mail from people that are like, you don't get it. And, and here's the thing, if I don't get it, people in the middle of corporate America and anywhere else in the United States that's not Berkeley, they don't get it either. Yeah, exactly. And I think we're talking about two different things here. So when I say present, I mean like zeroing in on the moment so all of your forces are right there right now, ready to make something happen. Boom. So sans distraction. Sans distraction. When I think the present you're describing is like detachment, where you're just like, I'm one with the universe and I want to feed baby, you know, llamas, llamas. Uh, but, but there is also the sans distraction. Like guys are focused so intently. It comes across weirdly in their body language. I was just talking with James Swanwick, a friend of mine who used to be working with uh, ESPN 
Australia. And so he interviewed guys like John Travolta. And I've met some high-ranking Scientologists and stuff like that. And they do this thing where they, like, grab your hand and they lean in real close. And they're looking at you right in the eye. And it's like they're very, quote-unquote, present, but it's just way off the chart. It's uncalibrated, right? Wow, yeah. I think that's an important point to bring up because, you know, you, you have to pay attention to all these other factors. Now, presence is important, but you don't want to be, like, shaking somebody against the wall being like, look at me, right? <laughs> that's not the present we're going for. You want to be present in the moment with a level of intensity that like you're there, like you've shown up, but not so intense that, again, you're scary or creepy. And, and you know, to be honest, this is something that, that I have problems with sometimes because I like to take on a lot of different projects and I have a lot of things going on. I can get caught in thinking, you know, a few steps ahead or a few days ahead or thinking onto the next thing. And so a, a couple of things that have helped me really get present especially when my mind's going 100 miles per hour because I do have that, you know, ADD tendency is, you know, really focusing on your five senses, you know, again, hopefully that doesn't sound too much like I'm one with the universe, but focusing on your senses, coming back to the present moment, making eye contact in a good, comfortable way. And for me, like when I'm really a thousand different things going through my mind, if I'm talking to someone and I find my mind drifting and studies have shown that this really works, I'll start repeating what they're saying back to myself in my head. So I'll start essentially reading their lips. And this is one thing that it sounds weird, but if you find yourself not able to get present with somebody in a meeting, you find your mind drifting, if you start doing this, it'll bring you back to the moment and you'll be able to focus better. So literally, if I repeat what you're saying in my head while you're saying it, it'll help me focus? Because I, some part of my brain or maybe my stomach lining does say that that make me focus less, but it, I'm sure that if, if it's something that you've worked on, I'm, I'm keen to try it. Just don't move your lips while you're doing it or you look like a psychopath, right? Yeah, that would be right. <laughs> <laughs> No, I want to try that though now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I want to the try that. The opposite of charisma. Yeah, no, but exactly. yeah. So, well, even as you hear me talk right now, if you start repeating what I'm saying after I'm saying it, it, it will bring your brain in tune with mine and what's going on, and it'll, it'll draw you into the moment. I was going to say, I'm not sure I would be able to focus on the content of what you're saying, but I think it would bring me into the moment. I think I'd be focused more on repeating rather than comprehension, That's but it, I yeah. don't think that I would be distracted by my phone or street noise anymore. So I get that. It's one of the things that's very strongly linked to also your physiology, right? So there are, I mean, a lot of people, they'll have like 15 cups of coffee and they're like, I can't be present. I can't be present. I'm so worried. That's where I'm at right now, literally. <laughs> yeah. So I think um, pay attention to, you know, your physical body, even something subtle. I was just reading a, a study before. There's something subtle like being a little bit too cold or a little bit too hot or having clothes that are fitting too tight can keep you from being present in the moment because you're focused on these little annoying things. Our biology is pretty sensitive. So paying attention to these little things can help you be in the, in the moment better. And then, you know, what's the value of this? I mean, something as simple, you brought up like cheesy stuff like smiling, eye contact. I mean, this stuff's obvious, but having good eye contact with someone, I mean, it, it makes people see you as more warm, honest, sincere, competent, confident, stable. The list goes on and on. Yeah, I mean, they've done yeah. in-depth studies on this. I think the idea of being present in the moment, like a lot of times we think, well, if I can figure out in my head something that I have to do, two hours from now while I'm in this meeting or having this conversation, then I'll be further ahead of the game and maybe get a promotion faster. It's actually wrong. If you can show up to every single meeting or interaction that you're having, that's what's going to move your career forward faster than trying to work out something in your head that hasn't even happened yet. I love the phrase show up because it's seriously when people are 
overthinking something or heavily distracted, they might as well not be there anyway. Yes. Because they're exactly. mentally completely absent. So showing up is perfect. And it does make sense that people, I, I know from our team members here at the Art of Charm, we have a lot of smart people. We've canned a lot of smart people too because they'll think 10 steps ahead. And I'm like, no, 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 don't try to think of a better system to do this. I just want this to get done. Then you can sort of hack the process after you've accomplished the goal. But then a lot of times people will be like, yeah, 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 whatever. Oh, I hacked it and it, oh, wait, this broke. Oh, that didn't yeah. get done the way you wanted. And then I'm like, thanks, now we're delayed and I just paid you 18 hours to learn from a mistake that I already told you how to avoid. I'm not yes. happy. Exactly. Um, that's the importance of being present. Like I, I wrestled in high school and college, right? And one of the biggest sins at a wrestling tournament was not focusing on the match that you had first, you're already thinking about your semifinals match. Oh. And then losing that match because you're wrestling the one ahead of you when you should be wrestling that match. Like you're so stressed out about the guy you have to see in the finals that you lose to the guy you're wrestling in the quarterfinals. This has happened to me before. It's the same exact thing. So focus on where you are now. Win the current battle and then you can win the future battle. Excellent. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It seems so obvious. Obviously, you're not focused on the current moment you're not gonna have everything at top of mind. Why does that affect performance so much? I mean, especially if it's something we've done a lot and internalized, how come we can't just perform at that same level all the time? Why do we actually have to focus? You know, it obviously depends on what level you're at, but it, the, the problem is you're dividing your forces. I mean, think if you have an army of a thousand people, you know, like you think of your brain as an army of a thousand people, and you see if you send 500 of those, to Alaska, like we're playing a risk game, send it to Alaska, and then you send another 500 to, you know, New York, you divided your forces, and now you're much easier to be attacked from one side or the other than if you kept all those thousand together in Alaska first, and then started moving forward. And the reason it affects your biology is because your mind and your physiology are closely linked, right? So if your mind is somewhere else, part of your body is going to be somewhere else too. And you're not going to be able to execute as effectively as if you were focused and present in that moment. That seems so obvious, but I'm asking because it seems like a lot of it would be internalized at some point. Well, I don't know if you've covered any of this stuff on ego depletion or like willpower depletion. Yes, a uh, little bit, but please do. Okay, so every time that you worry or think ahead of the future, it drains your energy and it actually drains your willpower. And study after study is showing that you have a discrete amount of willpower units throughout the day. And I'll just tell you one quick experiment. There's a guy named Baba Shiv at Stanford University who does a lot of the kind of the leading edge, cutting edge work on this. What he did was he took two groups of students and he had one memorize a two-digit number and one memorize a seven-digit number. And he had them walk down a hall. It was like, I don't know, a couple hundred yards. And they had to memorize that number and report it to the person at the end of the hall. Halfway down the hall was two tables, one with like really bad for you, crappy pastries, like, like I would have chose, or really healthy fruit. The people that had to memorize the seven-digit number, the longer number, chose the unhealthy food two to three times as often as the people who had just had to memorize the two-digit number because they were under mental strain. And they haven't just done this with like good food or, or bad food. They've also done it with tests. They've had people memorize these numbers, make simple decisions like they'd hold up a red pen or a blue pen and be like, which one do you want? Red. And then they'll hold up like um, a, a candle in a box. Which one would you rather have as a free gift, the candle, over and over again? And then make them take a test afterwards. The people that answered more questions, even though they were simple, no-brainer questions, performed worse on the test. So every ounce of mental strain that you use, and this includes thinking ahead in the future, especially 
for, for thinking ahead, especially for any kind of working memory type stuff, lowers your performance. So that's why presence matters. That's a great point because you can be thinking 10 steps ahead and burn out all that willpower that you would actually need to focus on the task at hand and you could, it's kind of like buying things on credit. Yes, you're hurting your performance when you do it. Interesting. That's amazing, by the way. It, now back to the good stuff. Speaking of being interesting, you've mentioned that there's a way to be more than you seem using contrasting skill sets to increase magnetism. Let's talk about that because that's something that I have not heard but that I feel like I've experienced and that people have mentioned about folks that have charisma. You know, I'm not going to just sit here and pat myself on the back, but I think that that's a really interesting sort of skill to cultivate as well. And it does make people seem multidimensional, but let's define it and talk about what it is and then teach people how to do it. Right. So, uh, yeah, I call it mystery. We hear like, you know, mysterious things are attractive, right? But I like to think of it in terms of paradox because you have two different kind of opposing traits that people want to somehow resolve. And so you create this paradox that you make other people want to resolve. And paradoxes are they're powerful. And I think that the main paradox when it comes to being charismatic that you want to create is you want to create this paradox of strength and warmth, where you want to be really strong, really confident, and at the same time, you want to be really open, really warm, and really vulnerable. And it's this kind of magic combination. And it's been shown, they've done studies out of Harvard, Princeton, election poll studies, that this particular combination is strength and warmth. And, you know, because it can be other things. It can be, you know, intelligence and at the same time sloppiness maybe. But strength and warmth is kind of the magic combination. And so how do you convey strength? A couple of key ways are mainly with posture and gesture, right? So good erect posture, just as a simple example. And then avoiding kind of weak postures. You know, and this is my favorite one. Um, rubbing yourself is seen as very weak. So this yeah, is something biting your nails or like comforting, grabbing the back of your neck, stuff like that. It's like a placating. Is that what it is? Yeah. There's, a, there's a name for this. Yeah, you're right. It's self comforting. It's when you're like, oh, I'm nervous or I'm scared or I'm threatened. And suddenly you crush your arms and you shrink up or you. Yeah. And if you, if you can take away just that one thing from this, I mean, it's pretty powerful because you'll notice people doing it and you'll notice when they're uncomfortable and you'll notice yourself do like little things like even maybe just rubbing your ear for a second or playing with your thumb for a second just because you're a little bit uncomfortable and you can even see if you want you know watch movies and tvs actors will do this on purpose to convey that they're uncomfortable it's a huge bummer when you do it and you know you're doing it of course <laughs> i know that right that yeah. factoid and then when i'm nervous i'm still doing it i'm like stop doing that stop doing that oh my god i'm doing another thing <laughs> instead you know everybody's watching you stop yes, it. and everyone knows yeah, yeah, well, the, the funny thing is most people don't know, but no, I think um, it's it's good to know. And even if you can cut it off short, right, it's good. You know, so conveying strength, warmth, not doing these kind of weak gestures. And then the warmth part is conveyed mostly by, I can't say this with a straight face, but they show just with like a warm smile. Like so if you're presenting, right, if you have a very erect posture and you're able to have a, a warm smile by example, but it goes beyond smile into really just being open like. And this is something I have a problem with too, and I'm sure you do like this idea of like people kind of oversay this word vulnerability or yeah. authenticity, right? It's like, okay, I get it. I'm supposed to be like weak and stuff, but it's not about being weak. It's about being open. And that idea of being very confident, but also very open is the same thing as being very strong and very warm. And that's what creates kind of this paradox. And people are like, okay, so he's very tough. But he's also like kind of like vulnerable and open. I don't I don't get it, and that's what draws him in. 
Yeah, it does make sense because you think about things like that all the time. It's newsworthy when an athlete is like a nice person also or warm or helps kids. It's very much a repute when like a big, strong dude is also very nice and kind and giving. But if a normal guy is like that, it's like, oh, yeah, he's a nice person, but it's not really a big deal. And I think a lot of people try to do the reverse. Maybe they're small in stature or thin, and so they're like, I'm going to be an aggressive son of a bitch to make up for it. <laughs> it doesn't work, right? No. It's, it has the opposite effect. What other sort of opposing skill sets do we have? Yes, if you're a strong guy, you can showcase that vulnerability by being kind and giving and friendly. Say I am five foot four and I'm thin, I'm not going to be able to pull off strong and vulnerable. What are my options? Right. I think it's important to say, you know, um, it's not so much physical strength, it's just like strength of character and confidence in yourself. Like when somebody kind of radiates, they're like, you know, I got this, I can handle it. And at the same time, they're very open about their concerns in a matter of fact way, not in like a please come and give me a hug way, but just again, very open and warm. But at the same time, they have uh, that have that strength of character. And there's lots of examples. I mean, for better or worse, I mean, uh, the one we see a lot in like TVs and the movies is we'll see people that are very successful, but at the same time, they are also sabotaging themselves. <laughs> and that creates this paradox that people want to resolve and it makes them come off as charismatic. But the goal here is to have two opposing traits that will both benefit you at the same time. I think a lot of people and a lot of guys in particular that I want to come across as very strong, you know, like very firm, but because of it, they get closed off and that can actually inhibit your charm, your charisma. And on the reverse, you get a lot of guys like we were just talking about, you know, some of them were one with the universe that are very open and vulnerable and in touch with their feelings and all this stuff, but they come off as very weak. So you can't be, you know, one or the other, you gotta, you gotta have those opposing forces. And that's what kind of creates this paradox, this mystery, this, this layered personality that'll make you more charismatic. I like that a lot because it tends to be something that happens and it's something that we appreciate in others, but that we rarely cultivate in ourselves. Yes, absolutely. What about arousing people to action with emotion? That was one of the things we sort of talked about yes. off air. And I think that's really interesting. And everyone kind of knows that you can wrap people in and get people really emotional. You can get them to follow your lead, but not many people talk about how to do it. They just say, your passion is contagious. And often that's just kind of a load of crap. Often your passion is annoying or weird. <laughs> yeah, so triggering like a physical response is what will get people to get them on board with your ideas or it'll make you memorable. It'll make people talk about you. It'll make people you know, share stuff with you. This all comes down to physical arousal and, and physical arousal really just comes down to emotion. It's part of your brain called the limbic system that you're tapping into. Yeah, the lizard brain, right? The lizard brain, yes. There's several good books that have come out about this. One recently was Contagious by Jonah Berger and it, it talks about how you can tap into this, you know, with emotion and I think ones that work particularly well are, you know, confusion, frustration, fear, excitement, awe, disgust. You might not think some of these work, but they do arouse people and, and they can make someone appear more charismatic because they're eliciting a physical response in other people instead of, you know, sometimes you meet those people and then they walk out of the room and you, you know, you forget about them. They're not memorable. They didn't elicit any, any response. So kind of triggering emotion is important. And it doesn't just come down to like goody, goody passion. Like you said, it comes down to really tapping into different emotions at different times. The one study in that book, Contagious, that I really like, they did a study of all New York Times articles over a six-month period. And 
he looked at which ones were shared and which ones stimulated the emotional reaction the most. And it turns out that articles that had to do with like science and technology and elicited kind of like an awe or wow response were shared. And one of the best emotions to kind of tap into with people, especially in terms of charisma or likability, is the sense of awe. You know, for better or worse, again, this is why some people will they'll exaggerate. I caught a fish that was, you know, four feet long to create this, but you, you can do this by, by sharing things that are interesting. And again, this comes back to just learning about things that are interesting, uh, but other emotions too. Uh, excitement is a good one. And excitement is powerful because it is one of the few things that will trigger people to take action. There's a, a really cool study that I liked that had four groups of people and one group watched a dramatic film one group watched a horror movie, you know, right? so we had drama like sadness, we have uh, fear being elicited, and then one group watched a documentary, so that's just like neutral, and then one group watched a movie with a lot of car chases. And then they put them into, they had them mimic buying and trading stocks and interacting with other people, and they found out that the only one of those emotions that changed their actual behavior was the people that watched the car chase movie first. So excitement was like the only emotion that triggered a reaction and changed people's behavior and actually in a more aggressive way. So when you can get people, that's why we talk a lot about excitement and pacing your voice and that nervous energy we talked about with expressiveness, that Vince Vaughn kind of energy. Yeah. That is crucial to influencing people because that is the one emotion that will really make them change their behavior or take action. Interesting. And there's studies that show this, which is even more impressive. I don't even yes. know how you would study that. So how do we cultivate that? I mean, it, it seems like it'd be really difficult because, yeah, we can all say, let's imitate Vince Vaughn, but if we could all act like that, we'd all be actors. Right. And, and so I think it just comes down to the things that we've broken down to, right? And, and breaking down charisma into not this black box, but just into a few things that can help you increase really your communication skills, your sensitivity, uh, your clarity, these kind of things, these kind of practical things that you can take action on and get better at right now. And when it comes to it, getting people excited, uh, first, like we said, pay attention, read the room, be sensitive to what's going on, really understand it. Once you understand the social makeup of the room, once you read the audience, then you can start to connect with them and find common ground, get them to uh, relate to you in a way. And then once you can get them to relate, then you can start influencing their behavior by getting them excited about stuff, doing some of these things we talked about where you might want to you know, slow your voice down and then speed it up to get them excited about it, changing the pace of your voice, using your hands more, being more expressive, mannerisms, stuff like this. So when I first started presenting and the first talk that I had to learn to present in front of a company – I studied it and studied it and studied it, and then when I gave it for the first time, it was still a little bit robotic because it was one of my first presentations. But then as I started giving it you know, 100 times or 200 times, like it became a part of me, and it was no longer robotic. It was part of my personality. That's the same thing with charisma. So if you go out there and like you try to be more expressive or change the pace of your speech – or use more mannerisms, and at first it comes off robotic and you look a little stupid, so what? Keep practicing it, keep being more expressive, and eventually they'll become a part of you. And as this happens, your charisma will increase. Excellent, and I think that's really important, of course, and if you guys need help reading people, The Art of Charm Toolbox, actually, at theartoftrumppodcast.com slash toolbox, we talk a lot about reading body language, nonverbal communications, that's a skill that requires a lot of practice. A lot of people come in for coaching just to learn that stuff because it's so huge and it's really yeah. impossible to teach in an audio-only format in any thorough way. Now let's talk about, we mentioned emotions as well. Ruling over your emotions with an iron fist, 
What's the counterbalance strategy that we're talking about here and adjusting our physiology? One, why is it important to quote unquote rule over our emotions and, and then how do we do it? Right. So this comes back to emotional intelligence and this counterbalance strategy, which I love, I'm borrowing from uh, Robert Greene. I don't know if you've read, read any of his books. Yeah, like he's that. a friend of mine. He was actually on the show a couple of months ago, actually. He was That's on right. episode 250. Perfect number. Yes. And so one of the things he talks about is this counterbalance strategy. So when you're feeling a certain intense emotion, being able to stop and be like, okay, I'm feeling this emotion. I need to do the opposite action that's associated with it. The result will be it'll even you out. Again, they're counterbalancing each other. It's going to keep you on point. I'll give you a great practical example. Somebody sends you an email that just pisses you off, sends you over the edge, right? What's your first reaction? My actual reaction or the reaction that I would have had like a few years ago? Yeah, a few years ago. A few years ago, I would have replied with, here's why you're wrong and also an a-hole. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you just see your hands gravitating really towards the keyboard. You want to fire off an email back and show them why you're right. But in reality, and it sounds like what you've learned, is you should do the opposite and do nothing. Like let that sink in until that anger goes away, even if it's a couple of days. Like I've literally had to wait three days sometimes to write back an email. Yeah. Isn't there like a Dale Carnegie thing where it's like, put this letter in your drawer and never send it or, or someone's wife had like intercepted it. There's a story of this, right? Something like that. Yeah. Something's yeah. And the same is true for email really. Uh, but for anything that makes you angry, like you will want to take action so bad. Like emotional intelligence just simply is being realizing that you're angry and you want to take action and then not doing it and doing the opposite. If you're anxious, you know, maybe a little nervous about something, force yourself to act confident. I'll give you an open vulnerable example. <laughs> I, I still get a little nervous on planes sometimes. If something's, there's really bad turbulence or whatever else, I will sit up straight, put my feet flat on the ground, you know, carry myself upright, and it actually makes me feel better. It makes me feel more confident about the situation. Doing these things, right? So acting confident when you're feeling fearful will balance you back to normal. If you're feeling cocky, like if you had a big win, let's say you get a big raise, I think this was in the book Freakonomics is the first one I read where it showed that people are something like 900% more likely to get a speeding ticket going home after getting a raise because they feel invincible, right? So especially when you have a big win and you're feeling on top of the world cocky, that's when you need to slow yourself down and really keep an eye out for risks because you're kind of numb to them. There's another great book. Uh, I think it's The Hour Between Dog and Wolf that talks about how for men in particular – that when you have a big win, your testosterone shoots through the roof and makes you even more feeling even more confident, cocky, like you're invincible, and that's when you're really susceptible to making you know to getting a speeding ticket or to having something bad happen to you. So this idea of counterbalancing it will help prevent that. It's nothing magical. It's just like you get that rush of emotion. It's just looking for those visual clues first. Like okay, I was just given a raise and I feel great, incredible. I want to take off in my car like I'm in the movie Gone in sixty seconds. Uh, I'm just going to slow it down a little bit, be extra careful because I'm super excited right now and my testosterone's through the roof and kind of avoid any mistakes for the next day. So yeah, it's just really paying attention to yourself and getting used to asking yourself the questions. Okay, I feel like this. How should I respond? Instead of just responding, just reacting, like being kind of proactive. As a dude, I feel like that happens a lot. And my dad's yes. kind of a hothead, so I also am, I can be a little bit that way. And it's really embarrassing I'll sometimes say or do something, and then like an hour later, I'm like, oh, man, I've got to fix that. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's really annoying because in the moment, I know. I'm like, this is a bad idea. It took a lot of years of experience to realize that that was 
going to happen over and over and that I shouldn't do it even if I really want to. I think for guys on that level, especially with like these testosterone driven things, it can be tough. Have you heard of the ultimatum experiment? No. So it's this great experiment that's been done in a thousand different ways. Basically, you take two people, give one person a hundred bucks and ask him to give a proportion of the money to the second person. If the second person accepts the money offered, both people keep their portions, right? If the second person rejects the money offered, neither person keeps anything. So it's kind of like this battle of interaction, right? And I think it's very relevant to what we're talking about, this interpersonal skill set. The average offer from the first participant to the second is $37, right? You would think that the first person would be like, okay, we can both get $53 in this experiment and just give them 50 but the average offer of the first participant to the second is $37, even though they both had equal power, you know, because the second person cannot accept it and then neither of them get money. If the second participant receives less than $30, he will reject it most of the time and make the other person not get any of the money because he's pissed at him for giving him such a low amount. Wow. So you, sh- you cut off your nose to spite your face all the time. Right. Well, the interesting part of the study is, is that after a big win or, or whatever else have their testosterone levels higher than normal, people that just have walking around higher than average testosterone levels, um, compared to the average, they offered 27% less money to the second person. So it's just, just an example of how you know your physiology and these things where you have really high testosterone levels can kind of blunt you or make you immune to certain things. And the studies also found that oxytocin, which you've probably heard is kind of like the, you know, you're with a group of friends or your significant other, that's kind of the hormone that kicks in, kind of the anti-testosterone. If you have high levels of that, the first person will be much more generous, for example. And the whole point of bringing up this study is just that your physiology affects your state. And so if you're feeling very angry, very cocky, very anxious, you can counterbalance that by changing your behavior, and it'll put you right back on center. Excellent. This is all amazing stuff. I I love it, and I think we've gone pretty much to the max of a lot of attention spans. I uh, don't know about yours, but we're, I think we're getting there. Over. Yeah, excellent. Thanks so much, man. Is there anything else you want to leave us with? Because we're, of course, going to link to IsaiahHankel.com and your book, Black Hole Focus, as well in the show notes. And I think this is amazing. And there's just so much here that I think guys need to go out and start digesting this and start using it because otherwise it's just useless. Absolutely. I had a, I had a great time. I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Whoosh, that was a good one, guys. In my humble opinion, I love the sheep farmer to author and tech consultant story, and I really like what we discussed here. We definitely went over time, but I love talking about how charisma and why charisma is actually a learnable skill, as well as how to develop that charisma, that expression, that self-control, calibration, presence, and clarity. And I was surprised to learn that fiction can develop your emotional intelligence, as well as the idea that your gut actually has neurons in it. I mean, I'd heard that before, but I just wasn't sure how it worked, and I'm glad that we got that explanation here today. I think that his gift really is explaining this stuff in a clear way that makes sense to the layman. Useful stuff as well, how to get super present and intense without looking like a dork, and the science behind willpower depletion, as well as those contrasting character traits that help you become more charismatic. Impassioning others through emotion and ruling over your own emotions are key skill sets as well. Again, I hope you guys enjoyed this one as much as I did, so share it with your friends, and I'll see you next time. Solid show as usual, if I do say so myself. Show feedback and guest suggestions. We rely on you guys to help keep our finger on the pulse. So if you know someone who's a good fit for the show, let us know at jordanh at theartofcharm.com. Bootcamp details, that's our live training at theartofcharm.com. And that's also where you can find links to us on Twitter, Facebook, and other social media. If you're listening to this but you're not subscribed in iTunes or Stitcher, then that needs to change. 
Getting our shows delivered free to your phone or computer is the best way to make sure you don't miss anything. You can do that by going to iTunes and searching for The Art of Charm podcast or by going to theartofcharm.com slash iTunes and clicking subscribe. That's it. You guys can also help us if you subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher. Give us a five-star rating and write something nice. We'll love you forever. Just go to iTunes.com slash The Art of Charm and it'll take you right there. When you write us a review, it not only makes us feel proud, but it helps keep us in the ranks so that other people who can use this information can find the show more easily and get the credible advice that they need. It's also the best way to support the show other than purchasing training from us. So tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. So have a great week, go out there and get social, and leave everything better than you found it.